Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. For the last probably month and a half now, we have been taking a detour from our Acts Sermon series to, to, to jump into a topic that is of ultimate importance, vital importance, which is our life with Jesus, our relationship with God, our intimacy with Christ, this relationship that we're called to. It's easy to think about what we were saved from. I know what my life was like before Jesus. I know what I was saved from in that respect. I know what my eternity would be like apart from Jesus. And I know what I was saved from in that respect. But we, while we were saved from these things, we were also saved into something, which is this relationship that Jesus has called us to, from which everything else we think of and associate with the Christian life flows out of. For instance, we are called to share the gospel. We are called to evangelize. But how can we tell people about Jesus if we have not really experienced the depth of a relationship with him? How can we possibly go and overcome obstacles in this world to do the things he's called us to do if we're not doing so out of the overflow of this life with Jesus he's called us to? How can we continue to battle the sin nature, this old flesh that hangs on so deeply sometimes, it seems, that we might move forward in this process of sanctification if we don't recognize that the very ability we have to be perfected comes not from our striving to be better, but from the process that takes place as we lean in in our life with Jesus. And so as a church, we have been focusing in on this life with Jesus, because if we don't get this part right, this foundation laid, then nothing else we talk about here really matters because we're not going to do it effectively. And so by life with Jesus, I gave a, de a definition, just a way for us to grab hold of this. I'm sure there are elements that could be added to it. Uh, I'm sure many of you could phrase it better, but here's what we came up with, what I came up with is this. By life with Jesus, I mean that mutual and intentional relationship between us and Christ through which we continually grow in our understanding and experience of his love and our desire to be obedient to him and to be transformed by him and in our willingness to be on mission with him. And so when we look at the scriptures, we know so much about God and his love and together we not only grow in our understanding of that, but in our very experience as we allow him to love us in the context of our life with Jesus. We know the things that we are supposed to do. We know the things we're not supposed to do. But Christianity is really not just about rules. It's not about the do's and don'ts, the must do's and the don't do's, right? It's about this relationship with Christ. And so as we lean in, we not only grow in our desire to be obedient to him, but also in our desire to allow him to transform us so that obedience comes naturally. And our desire to live 
is to live as he has asked us, instructed us, told us to live. And we serve a God who's on mission, right? If God was not on mission, none of us would be here today. God would have just pulled the curtain and that would have been it. Rebellious, rebellious humanity is separated from God for all of eternity, but God's not like that. God is a just God, but he's also a loving and compassionate God that has chosen to love us. And so throughout human history, he has been enacting his salvific plan that the message of hope of who he is would be revealed to the nations, that Jesus would come at the appropriate time, that his followers would have the message of the gospel to proclaim, and that they would go forth doing it across the entire world which is why what happened 2,000 years ago in a small region in Judea actually caused us to be in this room halfway around the world 2,000 years later. Because God not only did something, but because he's on mission, he has led his people on mission. And as we lean into our life with Jesus, the things that are important to him become important to us, and we too desire to join him on mission. And so this is what it means. This is what we've been focusing on. But here's part of the problem. That in our Western mindset, in our American culture, there are things that we have adopted, things that have saturated our worldviews that perhaps cause a little disconnect here. Because one of the things that we tend to think about is that this Christian life we're called to is my Christian life. And you have your Christian life and you have your Christian life, and we're all living our independent, autonomous Christian lives when that was never God's intention at all. In fact, the Christian life was never meant to live solo. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who just, they have their relationship with God, that, that, that vertical relationship and that's it. God has always called us to both that vertical relationship but also this horizontal relationship because we not only got saved from things, we got saved into things and by being saved into Christ, we are saved into his body, his assembly, his church. And so we're going to take a look at that together today, our life with Jesus together. You know, all the way back throughout the scriptures, we see God's relationship with humanity. For those called out ones, those ones that are united under him, and always it's in the context of community. When we look at the Old Testament, when we look at even the times of Jesus, the Jewish people and their identity, right? We see this idea of the assembly, God's covenant people, and they are known for their relationship with him, and they're identified in that way, but not individually, instead corporately as Israel. So when you see this whole assembly of Israel come together in the Old Testament, when you see the gathering of the assembly, it was under God, but united all of those in that covenant group, in that assembly, together before the Lord. And they met for all kinds of reasons. Uh, both in the Old Testament and in the times of Jesus. We see that they gathered to celebrate what God has done. They celebrated the feasts, the festivals, the holy days. It wasn't an individual private affair. It was all of God's people coming together to celebrate what God had, been, had done in their day 
and also in the past as they commemorated the great works of God among their people for generations and generations. They gathered weekly in local gatherings. In Jesus' day, this took place in the synagogues. So each region had their own synagogues. People weren't going to travel all the way to Jerusalem every Saturday. That just didn't happen, right? But there was these local synagogues where the community would gather together, the assembly of Israel, and they would study the word of God, and they would teach one another, and they would grow together in their understanding of the scriptures. As the assembly, as the gathering, they recognized national sin and mourned together. In fact, as you go back through the Old Testament, often the prophets would call out the people to gather together, the whole assembly, to put on sackcloth and ashes, to mourn, to cry out to God in desperate times. This wasn't everybody go home to your prayer closet and pray to God. You did a bad thing and we need to get right with God. This was everybody get out here because we together as the assembly of Israel are gonna call on the name of the Lord. We are gonna to repent together before him. Community, the assembly. We, the, together as the assembly, they recognized the need for God's help and they prayed together. When Israel was in danger of an oncoming army, they were called to pray together, to call out to God in one voice together so that God would help them. They were distinguished from all other nations by their, their identity with each other and with the Lord. Not just with the Lord, but with each other and with the Lord. Jesus spoke of his people, his followers, in the same way that the Old Testament, the Jewish people, talked about the assembly. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to see the first time this word is used. This word assembly, which we, use, which we use the Greek translation church or ecclesia, which is where we get church. Matthew 16, and we're going to start in verse 13. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. It will also be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, do you? Here's what it says in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. There's a whole lot going on in this passage, a whole lot I'd love to spend the whole time together talking about, but I want to highlight this idea of the assembly. So let's start at the beginning here of this passage. There's a lot of talk about Jesus. We knew this, right? We know this, right? If you've read through the Gospels, you see the buzz. 
He goes town to town and he's healing people of all kinds of diseases. In fact, it got to the point that when people heard that Jesus was in town or that Jesus was coming to town, they brought everybody who was sick, everybody who had a problem, a medical problem, they brought them to Jesus hoping that he would heal them. So many people gathered. He also spoke with amazing authority. And so people wanted to gather to hear his wise teaching. He, he did miracles, even apart from healings. He drew a crowd because of things that he had done. But that doesn't mean that everybody who was amazed at Jesus or everybody who flocked to Jesus did so because they understood who he was. Instead, a lot of them took what he did and came up with different interpretations of what this must mean. Who is this guy? What does he represent? And some people got it and some people didn't. And so when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? He got all kinds of answers. John the Baptist, who was recently uh, beheaded. Maybe you're, you're John the Baptist, come back to life. John the Baptist did amazing things. Maybe you're him. It might be one of the prophets. You know, the Old Testament prophets not only spoke for God, but God gave them the power to do really amazing things for him, to demonstrate the truth of the things they were proclaiming. And so perhaps one of them is some of the things that the people were saying that the disciples were hearing. But Jesus now challenged those who were his closest followers, those who've been with him the whole time. If anybody understood, it should be these guys. Who do you say that I am? And Peter hit the nail right on the head. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He got it. He knew who he was. And here's what Jesus turns around and says. He says, right on, man. He says, this wasn't revealed by man. God gave you this insight. And you are Peter. Now he says that because Peter's name Kephas means rock, and so Jesus has a nice play on words here. He says, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. What rock is he talking about? The rock of who he is. The rock of that declaration. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And on that proclamation, on that truth, on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus will build his assembly. He will build his church. Now, we use that word church, but that same word he uses is the same word the Bible uses over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament to talk about that gathering of Israel, the assembly of God's people who are united under him, but together one with another. And so Jesus is saying on this testimony, on this truth, I'm going to build this assembly that recognizes my lordship. Not that people are going to come, you know, here or there, or a whole bunch of autonomous, independent people are going to come and recognize that same truth, but that together on that truth, they are united now in an assembly. And the picture that these first century Jewish people had is the same thing that we've been reading about. The people of Israel who gather together to honor God, to pray to him, to repent before him, to call on him for help, to celebrate what he's done. These are things that we too, as Jesus's assembly, are called to do, not independently, but together. Life with Jesus together. So why bring this up? Because our life with Jesus, our relationship with God, our intimacy with Christ, cannot 
be rightly or effectively lived out apart from one another. I'll say it again. Our life with Jesus that we're called to have cannot be rightly or effectively lived out without each other. Because that option has never been on the table. That option was never true for any people group. It has always been the assembly, and the same is true in the New Testament. Our intentional and mutual relationship with God is intended to be in the context of the community of God, his church, his assembly. Our ability to grow and understand and experience his love is also intended within the context of the community of his church. Let me ask you a question. Raise your hand. I know I do this a lot. Jenny pointed it out. Now I'm very conscious of it. But I start doing it and then I recognize it. So indulge me. Raise your hand if you have experienced God's love through the love and compassion and help of a brother or sister in Christ in your life. That's one of the major ways that God loves us is through our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we can read this by ourselves at home in our little prayer closets. We can listen to a sermon on TV or radio that talks all about what the Bible has to say about God's love. But you are cutting off one of the major ways we experience God's love if we don't grow together in the relationship of his church, his assembly. Our ability to grow in our desire to be obedient to him and to be transformed by him is also intended to happen within the context of his church. Again, I hope you have personal Bible study time. I hope you read this on your own. I hope you don't just get it from the pulpit. I hope that you study it for yourself. But here's the thing. We could study this for ourselves, but it's within the context of our community, within the context of the church, God's people, that we can hold one another accountable, challenge one another when necessary, encourage one another to do better at living for this, to confess our sins one to another. Hey, that's biblical. You don't have to be a Catholic for that, right? Um, because what happens when you struggle with something? As somebody who has struggled with sin in his 20-something years of Christian, as a Christian, can I tell you something? The greatest victories God has brought in my life has come when I have confessed to another brother in Christ I struggle in this area. I failed multiple times. That temptation just keeps coming up. I can't seem to control it. And he says to me, not only will I pray for you, but I want you to tell me every time that that temptation even comes up. Call me. And you know what? God has broken me of some terrible sin patterns in life through accountability with a brother in Christ. Where would we be if we only learned what he had to say about it and didn't have brothers and sisters in Christ to walk along with to help to encourage us to overcome these things? We're giving up one of the major tools God has given us that we might have, that we might be obedient to him. And our ability to grow in our desire to be on mission with him. Friends, if we were, if we were disconnected from each other, we could not possibly fulfill his mission that he's called us to. Only together can we do this. And I'll be honest, why, why am I talking like this? And the Sunday school got a little insight this morning, but many people have lost sight of this. Many people in the American church, 
many people in our church. Look around you, there are empty seats. And over the last few years, sadly, a lot of people have passed away. Several have moved away. But there are others that there's really not a good reason that those seats remain empty today, if we're being honest. We all know it. I just said it out loud. Right? And you know what? The last two years have made it a lot harder. Right? COVID provided an opportunity for people to break fellowship. We had a few weeks apart. It was people were leery about coming back. Some people just never did. Uh, more ministries put media online, right? We did that. We started putting all the sermons online in video form. We started doing a whole lot of stuff we never did before. And more and more ministries are doing this. You've got a plethora of options from your Apple TV, from your regular TV, from your radio, from your computer, from Facebook. I mean, you can listen to a million sermons uh, if you wanted to without leaving your couch. In fact, in, uh, somewhere in the Glades area, there's literally a church that's advertising, listen online, church on the couch. There is no church on your couch. You can watch a sermon on your couch. There's no church on your couch. The church is together. I don't care whether it's meeting. If you bring the church to your house, bring your brothers and sisters in Christ. It could be church on your couch. But you need your brothers and sisters in Christ to do this. The church is not about consumption, consumerism, receiving, entertainment. It's not about any of those things. It's about community. It's about the assembly. It's about us being together. It's about the body of Christ. So I want to read a passage for, to you, and I want us to look at this together today. Because there's a lot of passages of Scripture that talk about the importance of the body what God desired in forming together the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus' assembly. I think this passage probably spells it as plainly as any. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to start in verse 12. I hear that one, that one page flipper. Thank you. Oh, another joined him. Do I hear another? I'm kidding. Somebody out there is flipping pages just to make me happy. It'll be up on the screen for you, too. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to start in verse 12. And just to set this up while you're still getting there. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul. He is writing to the church at Corinth. And this church is messed up. This church has problems. Okay, is they've got several problems. First of all, they have a problem we've seen over and over again, right? You have Jews and Gentiles all in one church. This is a group of people who never fraternized together. This is a, church, a group of people that were never friends. They didn't eat in each other's homes. They didn't fellowship together. Okay, and now all of a sudden, they're family. They're a body. They're the church. Okay, that's hard for them. But on top of that, Corinth is one of these, it's like New York City, it's like uh, Los Angeles, it's one of these melting pots, okay? It's one of these affluent cities. And here's what you have in the Roman Empire that you see reflected in Corinth. There is no middle class. If I had to guess, I think most of us, if not all of us, would identify with a middle class somewhere in that middle class range, okay? In this culture, there is no middle class. You have the elite, you have the wealthy, the rich, and we're talking generations and generations of riches and, and land and power and political power and authority and all kinds of things. Then you have the poor, really poor. And then even below that, you have slaves. 
And even those who were freed from slavery, they earned their slavery, they were granted their, I'm sorry, they earned their freedom, they were granted their freedom, even them, really not much higher on the totem pole than uh, slaves when it comes to this social, uh, the social world. So here, even in Corinth, you're meeting at a rich person's house because let's face it, there were no church buildings and this was the only place big enough where you could house the gathering of God's people. You have the rich people all gathering together with all the food and the drink in one room and you've got the poorer people all out to another place. This church was not doing family well. And Paul addresses this over and over and over. The factions, the, the, the things they're doing wrong and enjoying the Lord's Supper, the, the division between the, the members of the church. And he paints a picture here in 1 Corinthians 12 of what they're supposed to look like, how they need each other. They're not just a bunch of people. They're the body of Christ. And listen to what he has to say. 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, for all its parts form one, uh, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or, or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Well, our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You know, I had an analogy in Sunday school class, and listening to it, it's funny, you know, getting close to Halloween time, this is the kind of thing you'll hear more and more, maybe, something like this. But, you know, I think a lot of times churches in our country, Western world churches, our church, can see us more like a bucket of parts than as a body. We see ourselves as independent, autonomous individuals with a vertical relationship with God who choose to get together but who could also just as well choose not to. I hate to say that, and I know that's not true of everybody, but that is the way that churches throughout our country seem to be. How, you know, even in our own church, and I've used this, I've, I've mentioned this before, we've had an elder and his wife who just one day stopped coming. We've had a deaconess and his wife, I'm sorry, a deacon and his wife, just one day just stopped coming. So it's, and then we've had several others who weren't in leadership, but 
How interesting that there's two sides to that. That those who leave the church clearly don't understand that they're not just a part, but that they are part of a whole, that they're not indispensable. They're needed to be a part of the body, right? But then there's also what happens to the rest of us? Where were we when they walked away? Were we saying, hey, you need to come. I need you there. You know, you bring me joy coming and talking with me on Sunday mornings. Listen, you have a beautiful voice, and I love to hear you sing to the Lord together when we gather together. It brings me joy having you there. I mean, these kinds of things. And so there's two sides of it. I think that we get, we've gotten used to the idea that this is very much like Rotary Club or anything else, that we come because we get something from it, but we could easily not come. Friends, a person not being a part of this church, whether it's somebody walking away for good or, eh, I'm going to come once a month, you know, what's what I feel like and I'll come. Here's what happens. It's like the body waking up one Sunday morning and the arm is gone or the leg is gone. It affects the health of the body. It affects the function of the body because one part uh, affects all the rest. What's Paul saying here? That there are no important parts and non-important parts. Every part is essential, right? A couple years ago, we learned that some of us are not essential workers. Guess what? We're all essential parts of the body of Christ. Every one of you is essential. And those who left, are they're essential. And those who come once in a while are essential. And we need to understand this. And so for us, we need to, first of all, if we have that temptation, I don't feel like going to church. Or, oh, I know what the pastor's preaching. I looked ahead in the, in the, in the, in the text. Or, uh, you know what? Maybe we just stay home and watch it on TV. Please understand that in those moments, you're not recognizing what God has made clear that you're not just a person called to have a vertical relationship with him, but you are an essential part of a body, a horizontal relationship that he has by his grace and by his design placed you in because he loves you and wants you to benefit. And he loves the rest of us and wants us to benefit from your presence and participation with us. We are all essential parts of this body. The church is not Mr. Potato Head where we could just rearrange the parts and pull some out and stick new ones in. It hurts every time that happens. The church is not the Rotary Club. You know, it's not a, I choose to be a member, but I might choose not to be. That's not the way it is. Church is not the movie theater. I've, I've had people joke with me, and I get it. It was a joke. I've made similar jokes when I wasn't a pastor of a church. But you hear the pastor's going to be away. Eh, maybe it'll come. You know, who you have speaking? Is he good? Um, how many times do churches lose their pastor? And they're like, oh, this is our moment. Let's go find a new church. The problem is the pastor is not what you come for. And if it is, please don't. You're putting way too much faith in me and not enough in each other. Family, body, need each other. The body is inseparable, at least without significant trauma. The parts of the body complement one another. They support each other. They need each other to function 
properly. Do you wonder when we talk about our lack of impact in this community in recent years, how impactful would we be if every part of this body was all in for this body? We're here. I want to know how I could serve. And we do it together. And we do it excitedly. And we do it well. And we do it with joy. Not only will people here be blessed, this whole community will be blessed. And it's possible. We just need to align our thinking with what the scriptures reveal about who we are as the body of Christ. I'm going to read this last passage really quick here. I know I've got like 15 more. No. Here's what Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 says. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since you have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful, right? There's your vertical. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The end. And all the tumultuous, chaotic, crazy wicked things that are going to take place in that last day. And friends, a lot of people remark to me how crazy the world is, how against Christians the world is, how bad it's getting. Are we in the end times? I get this all the time. And you know what? Maybe. Who knows? Um, but here's the thing. If we think when the end is upon us and things are at their worst that we're going to pull together, but we don't do it now, boy, are we going to be ill-prepared when that day does come, whether it's sooner or later. We need to be encouraging one another, spurring one another on. We need to depend on one another when things are hard, that we might continue to be effective in this mission, that we might meet the needs of our congregation together, that we might bless God and the purposes he has for us in our our high calling as his church. We can only do it together. So here's a little application. What does togetherness look like? in our life with Jesus. What does it look like? And we're all gathered here together today, right? We're here. So, so didn't we do it? What does it mean? So for starters, we need to be present with and for each other, okay? Yes, I do mean Sunday morning, but I don't just mean Sunday morning. If you only see each other for an hour on Sunday morning, friends, that's a great start. But we need to do life together. We need to call each other. We need to get together and serve together. We need to come and Bible study together. We need to do things together as a community, as the assembly, more than just the once a week. If you don't come once a week or you don't come regularly once a week, that's the first place to start, but that's not the finish line. We need to be present with and for each other. We need to, we need to have enough relationship that when things do get hard, You know you can go to any of your brothers and sisters in here and they'll hear you. They'll pray for you. 
They'll help you. They'll serve with you. We need accountability partners, like I told you about earlier. We need to live life together. So more present with and for each other. We need to encourage one another. Friends, we live in one of those, you know, suck it up, tough it out, you know, be a man, you know, those kind of cultures. Can I tell you something? You can't do it yourself. All we do is compound our traumas, push ourselves, put more obstacles between us and the Lord. We need to walk together, encourage one another, especially when times are tough, right? We need that. We need to walk with one another in discipleship. Yes, great, you could read your Bible on your own. I won't make you raise your hands, but think for a moment. Have you ever come across a passage of Scripture you had no idea what it was saying? Have you ever come across Scripture and had no idea what it's supposed to mean for you? How could you live this out in your day? Have you ever read a passage of Scripture that quickly forgot what you read and really didn't do anything for you? Now imagine you were studying the Scriptures with brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who maybe when you don't know what it's saying, they have some insight. Maybe when you don't know how you can apply it to your life, they might have an idea. Maybe when you read something together with them, the next day they could say, have you been reflecting on that passage? What's God been doing in your life through what we read in the Bible together? We need to walk through discipleship together. We need to challenge, rebuke, correct one another. Oh, we don't want to do that. That's not my place. That's the pastor's place. The elders do that. Okay, that's really not true. Um, Now, we don't do this to judge one another. But we do this because we love one another and we want to see people redeemed. And so when somebody's going off the path, when somebody's falling into trouble, messing with things they're not supposed to be messing with, really misunderstanding what Scripture says on something, out of love and compassion, we need to correct them, sometimes rebuke them, help them understand better what the Scriptures say. That's all of our job with one another. We need to serve each other and we need to serve others together. We need to bless one another, fill needs in each other's lives, and then you know what else? We're on mission still, right? So we need to together find ways to serve, find ways to share the gospel. And of course, we need to celebrate together, worship together, pray together, fellowship together. These are what we're called to do. Just like God's people all the way through history have been done, the assembly of God's people And we are the assembly of Christ, the body of Christ, and we're called to do these things together. So friends, I thank you for being here. I hope you didn't come today and and, and hear the sermon and be like, wow, I got scolded for what other people did because they left the church. That's not what this was. This was a, this sermon is several years too late. This is a, we have obstacles our life with Jesus just because we live in a culture that's very autonomous, very independent, doesn't do community well. But that's what we're called to be, community. And we need each other. And even if we don't recognize it, I promise you, the more we lead into the community of the church, the more we will recognize how desperately we need it.